chapter 15. Verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that somebody lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Well, let us ask God to bless his word read and preached. Our Father, please bless the reading and preaching of your word. Let us receive it not with hard hearts, but soft hearts, not in darkness, but in light, not with frowning, but with joy, for these are the words of eternal life. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. There are so many different relationships you experience in this world even as a Christian, besides your vertical relationships whereby you uh, love God as Father, you love Jesus Christ as Savior, you love the Holy Spirit as the one who enables you to commune with the Father and the Son, you also are uh, filled with relationships whereby perhaps you love your spouse and your children. If you're a Christian, you love or you are commanded to love those who belong to Christ. You are to love one another as I have loved you, our Lord Jesus Christ says. And then there are those in the world, and we're told in this passage that the people of the world are going to hate you. What is your response to them? You're to love them. In other words, as a Christian, the fundamental mark of your relationships with everyone and anyone is one of love, whether God or fellow man. Here, Jesus speaks about the love that those who are Christians are to have for one another. And that love that we experience with one another is to be so intense and profound that it enables us to go into the world and receive hatred, but receive hatred knowing that it is because we love Christ, Christ loves us, and because we love one another. 
In other words, if you do not experience the love of God's people and the love of God through Christ Jesus, you're going to be less likely to go into the world and preach or speak about Jesus Christ. That's the connection here, and I'm not a huge fan of the uh, hatred of the world heading there because I really believe that verse 17 and 18 uh, have a very important connection between the love we experience with each other and God, but also how we are to go into the world. If we love the world, we will go into the world and receive its hatred because we belong to Christ. So, if you see here, it's very uh, plain what Jesus is saying in verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. This is the new commandment we read of in John chapter 13. What makes it new? What makes it new is that Jesus Christ is the focal point of what it means to truly love. He lays down his life. And he says that in the next verse. They probably weren't entirely sure what these words meant when he originally spoke them, but there can be no doubt of his intention when looking back upon what unfolded shortly thereafter. Verse 13, greater love. There's no greater love than this. And what is it? That somebody is prepared to lay down their life for his friends. Imagine looking at this verse and thinking about somebody telling you to do something, but they have no idea how difficult the thing they're asking you to do is. That usually makes it hard to receive. Someone tells you to do something, and you know they have no idea that what they're telling you is something they've never experienced. When Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, after he has just told them to love one another, he then says that somebody lay down his life for his friends. He is about to go and do just that. In other words, he not only talks the talk, but he walks the walk. And then he will say, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Now, there's an important point here you mustn't miss. It may be hard for some of us to accept today, and I don't wish to ruin your day, but I must say this. Abraham is called the friend of God. Moses is called the friend of God. Lazarus is called the friend of Jesus. But nowhere in God's Word is God or Jesus ever called our friend. Uh, you can guess what hymn we may not be singing as our final hymn. Now, as I said, I'm not a Debbie Downer. Uh, but I think there's something important at stake here. While we are the friends of Jesus... And Jesus is nowhere ever called our friend. There's something you mustn't miss here. The first is that for all of the intimacy that we experience with Christ, for all that he reveals to us because we are his friends, for all of the wondrous communion we can enjoy with our triune God, there is something that you have to believe as soon as you hold the Bible in your hands and you open it up and you interpret it. It is that there is a God and you are not Him. 
And when you come to that understanding, that is the first principle of interpretation. Remove that and any possible interpretation can emerge. That is to say, there will always be a gulf between the one who is the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the one who is very God, a very God, and you. He is the Savior. He is the Lord. He is God. You are not. He is not your buddy. There is a way in which we can actually be inappropriate towards Jesus because we miss the regal nature of His glorious person and who He is to us. When John sees Him, he falls down as though dead. The point is, we are His friends. And because we are His friends, He is going to bring us into that communion whereby He tells us things that a servant doesn't know of their master. And that is, of course, the nature of of being a friend. Someone will be willing to tell you things that they don't go and tell everybody. That is the glory of having true friends is that you can open up to them in a way that you can't go down the street and speak to people. So he says, you are my friends if you do what I command you, and that is to love one another. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. There is nothing that you receive from God that hasn't been revealed to you by Jesus Christ. Nothing. There is no truth that you can possibly conceive of God that doesn't come from the mouth of Jesus Christ. He is the Word of God. Now, in light of that, he will then speak to his disciples and say, you did not choose me. You see what he's doing here? He's actually highlighting there is a gulf between us and him. You did not choose me. I'm not your buddy. I'm your Lord. And I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Now, I think in context... The bearing of fruit is not just the godly living, but the actual um, speaking, and in this case, the preaching of the gospel to others. And this fruit, whereby they will make disciples of many nations, will abide as indeed it has been abiding for many, many years. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, in relation to the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, He may give it to you. And these things I command you so that you will love one another. When you go into the world, when you go into a world that is hostile, when you go into a place where you're not going to be immediately loved and welcomed in, remember that if love characterizes the relationships of those who belong to Jesus Christ, we will always have that as the foundation for receiving any type of hatred. And that's the glorious thing about the church. Now, he says, if the world hates you then, as you go out and bear fruit in my name, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Uh, at Presbytery, uh, we ask questions of candidates, theological questions. And... Sometimes the question comes up, it's related to uh, the five points of Calvinism, 
which is really a 20th century phenomenon, actually, TULIP. It only came up in the uh, early 1900s, but that's another story. Uh, people uh, want to ask about that, and so they say, could you give me a scripture passage about the tea? You know, you're at Presbytery, and you're probably depressed, and it's a dark day, and you say, tell me about total depravity. Uh, and could you give me a verse? And people come up with verses. Oh, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can know it? Or the carnal mind is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. And they say, oh yes, that's quite enough. Thank you. Oh no, I'm not done. Romans 3, their throats are open graves. The venom of asps is on their lips. And you, Thank you, sir. That'll be enough. But actually, if you were to highlight the wickedness, the moral perversity of any single human being, you could go to this passage. If the world hates you, know that it's because you're a jerk. No. If the world hates you, it's because you aren't particularly likable. No. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And then you go down to verse 25. They hated me without cause. Spurgeon actually makes this point. He says, I will not tell you of man's adulteries. He says, I will not tell you of man's fornications and murders and poisonings and sodomies. I will not tell you of man's wars and bloodsheds and cruelties and rebellions. If I want to tell you of man's sin, I must tell you that man decided to put to death his God and slew his Savior. And when I have told you that, I have given you the essence of all sin, the masterpiece of crime, the very pinnacle and climax of the terrific pyramid of mortal guilt. Show me a murder. Show me the things on the news, and they pale into significance that they hated the one good person who has ever lived without a cause. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated the God-man who came to save the world, who came to bless the world for no reason. And so, you have to ask, will the world hate you? Will the world be receptive to the message of the gospel? Uh, it's the long weekend, and uh, my boys, they get out from time to time. And they rival me for leading an exciting life. Uh, and I'm proud of them. Uh, they, they had this game, uh, I don't know what it's all about, but I don't know why Thomas ended up going with his friends to save on foods and taking the broom out of the kitchen with him to go to save on foods. Um, I need that broom for when I'm stressed out and I just start sweeping. Uh, and then he got accused of shoplifting because he's walking out of save on foods with a broom, which maybe was the janitor's. And then some random guy comes by and says, oh, these are my boys. Uh, everything okay here? Come on, boys, let's get going. And then as they walk away, jumps into his truck and says, see you later, guys which is really cool um, that he assumed responsibility for my boys. But they did this game where you start with a pencil and you go knock on someone's door and you try to trade up. 
And the first house they get to, they get a brand new Jenga set for a pencil. And I'm like, this is fantastic. I only learned about this after I woke up from my grandpa's nap. Um, you know, I go to sleep and they go, okay, let's get out of here and go do something. So they take a pencil, they get a Jenga set. And then they go to another house and a gentleman says, is this a social experiment? Which, of course, it was. And he says, oh, here's 20 bucks. And at that point, I think they pretty much closed up shop, went to the local gas station and bought Slurpees and all sorts of things. But do you know what happened at one house? I couldn't believe it. A man opens the door and Thomas, bless his heart, he says to the guy, would you like to hear about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Unbelievable. The guy closed the door on him and went and closed his garage. Which kind of makes sense. If what Jesus is saying here do you think the guy was sitting down at his table on a nice summer sunny afternoon and having a drink and thinking, you know, it's so beautiful. The Lord made the sun and I'm breathing His air and, you know, I don't worship Jesus Christ who came to die for sinners and I don't go to church. I'm very selfish. I need to change my life. I sure hope the doorbell rings and someone comes to speak to me about the Lord. Do you think he was sitting there thinking that? No. The world isn't receptive to being told they need a Savior. The world isn't receptive to being told that they are sinners. The world isn't receptive to being told there is a God in heaven and you are not Him and He gets to dictate how you should live your life and why you should live your life for His glory. If the world hates you, keep in mind, it hated me first because Jesus Christ didn't just come to earth as God. He came to earth as one who would lay down his life for sinners. And nobody wants to admit that they are in the wrong and God is in the right. So the hatred of the world makes sense. And Jesus says, because you are not of the world, in verse 19, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And this hatred is palatable. I think there's a type of hatred from the world that sometimes we aren't even aware is happening to us. There may be jobs that you have missed out on. There may be things that you have missed out on. There may be things that have been said to you, done to you, that you aren't even actually aware of. And it's the hatred of the world for God's people. Then there are times when you are hated. And by the world, I do not mean atheists only. By the world, I mean anyone that is truly opposed to who Jesus Christ is and what he represents. That may even be in Christian schools. If people in Christian schools hate you, keep in mind that it hated me first, that they do not truly love the Christ of the Scriptures. If people in the church hate you, keep in mind that people in the church put me to death first. In fact, I would say this, that if you really want to live a godly life, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, you will be persecuted. And if you are going to be persecuted, there may not be any more palatable place for you to be persecuted than going to a place that is religious, but actually living like a true Christian. Because the church has so bastardized Jesus Christ in what 
they have not said about him in terms of all of the spurious things they make him to be that he is not, that when the true Christ of the Scriptures is presented, it is not a Christ that everybody is willing to accept. And so he tells them in verse 20, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If you are like me, then you will be treated as I was. I think it's fair to say that if Jesus Christ came back to earth at this point, in the way that he came to earth many, many years ago as a servant, as one preaching the gospel, he may not be crucified upon a cross, but the end result would be no different. Because such is the heart of humanity. So, this will happen. And they will do it on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. Now, he then speaks about their specific sin in verses 21 to 24. And their specific sin is that when Jesus was present with them, he had spoken to them, he had performed miracles. And in verse 24, if I had not done among them the works, and there's an implicit Trinitarian hatred here, because the works were done in the power of the Spirit, that no one else did, such as the opening the eyes of the blind, they would not be guilty of sin. In other words, to whom much is given, much is required. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. They hate Jesus. They hate the Father. They hate the works that Jesus does in the power of the Spirit. They hate God. But the word that is written in their law, verse 25, must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Have you thought about the fact that in each and every one of us here, there is something, at least something distasteful about us that could give people a reason to not like us? I find the people I dislike the most are like me. You laugh, but it's true about all of you. There's things about us that deep down in our conscience, if we were to scratch around and poke around a little about what makes us distasteful, we particularly dislike in others. My best friend in school, I disliked him intensely for many years until he just started talking to me in French class. And it was, well, talk to this loser or learn French. So I talked to the loser. And I never liked him because he was like me. We became good friends. But the point is, Jesus was lacking anything that could make you dislike someone. Spurgeon has this in his sermon, I think, they hated me without a cause. He was not some high-ranking regal leader sitting in his palace each day, enjoying the high life and just doing with his subjects what he wished. And people tend to resent that type of power. He was not rich going around enjoying everything that he could have and flaunting his money. I mean, after all, he said, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He was not proud. Some people would be very likable if you could just remove that tincture of pride that 
raises its ugly head in them. And they were humble. He was meek and he was lowly of heart. He was not short-tempered or irritable. You know, there was a wonderful predictability about Jesus Christ, unlike some of us, right? Have you ever been around people where you have no idea what you're going to get from them? You have no idea why for some reason some days they just come and it looks like... Well, let me read you the words of Spurgeon instead of my own commentary on the matter. He says, these types of people, they look as if they were born on some terribly dark, stormy day. And as if in the mixture of their body, no small quantity of vinegar was employed. We know there are some people where you just don't know. They all of a sudden flip out and it's, it's jarring because a lot of times they're nice and then sometimes they flip out. There was none of that in Jesus. He was predictable in a very godly sense that he always responded to situations perfectly. He was not argumentative for the sake of it, where you're scared to open your mouth because someone's going to find something in what you've said and take you to task for it because they like to pick holes in everything that certain people say. He was not selfish. Some people have friendships and it's as though that they have the friendship because of what they can get out of that person. But Jesus actually was selfless and gave and gave and gave. If anything, people were selfish towards Him rather than the other way around. He was not somebody who sort of just comes in and leaves and doesn't want to have anything to do with someone. And you go, what's that person's problem? Sometimes being shy can be sinful. Sometimes being shy can be sinful. Please, don't walk out of here. Mark says shy people are sinful. Sometimes being shy can be sinful. You're just concerned about yourself. Jesus was out and about. He was around people. He was enjoying fellowship. There was nothing that could make us hate him in his personality and character that you would have reason to dislike any one of us. I had someone, a pastor friend of mine, he phoned me or texted me on Facebook. He's like, you wouldn't believe this. He was at South Surrey. He's like, I've just been walking by some guys and they were talking about you. I was like, oh yeah, all right, carry on. And one guy's like, I can't stand Mark Jones. (laughs) He's such a hothead. I was like, oh. And then the guy goes, yeah, but his players do play. This is in the context of soccer coaching, not being a pastor. Then maybe you said that, you know. And I've had a lot of stories about this because the same guy, I don't know what he does, but the same guy was in the white spot one day and some young guys were talking about me. Like, oh yeah, if you listen to him preach, you, you know, he's always saying wild things, but, you know, and this and that. And I'm like, whoa, this is... You've got to listen to things people say about you that may make you not very enjoyable. It's not nice. Jesus Christ, there is actually no reason with which anyone can say there is a cause for dislike. They hated me without a cause. So why is it that his person was so distasteful so that they hated him without a cause? Why is it that he was put to death? Why is it that God would come in the flesh to earth in order to save humanity and they would kill him? Why is it? What is it about us? 
And that's a very good question because it has ramifications for your life. Why does the world hate Christians? Well, they hate Christians because they hate the one good person who ever came to earth. They hate God as well. You see that in verses 23 and 24. Satan is at work in them, so they have spiritual ignorance in verses 21 and 24. But also we testify to Christ and all that Christ taught. You can see that in verses 20 to 22. Why does the world hate Christ and why does the world hate Christians? And let me be very clear about this. The world will only ever hate Christians who are truly faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can make Christianity palatable. You can make Christianity friendly. You can make Christianity to have no offense. It's very easy. There is a church that my father talked to me about the other day, I think it was yesterday, in Victoria, a Lutheran church on Cedar Hill Crossroad. There you go, look it up, and they're having a transgender-friendly day-to-day. You can make the church palatable. You can remove all offense. It's not that hard. And the world will love you. And the world will call you its own. And the world will enjoy you and say, this is... This is what we want. But a church whereby people say there is a God in heaven and He has revealed Himself and that the fundamental problem with humanity is that you are morally bankrupt, that you cannot do anything good in and of yourself and that the problem is so bad that the remedy had to be so extreme. And what is the extremity of the remedy? That God would die on a cross. That's how bad you are. You ever doubt for a second that you're a sinner? Look at the extremity of the remedy. God the Son died on a cross for your sins, plural. And you have no clue, no clue, nobody in here has no clue of what you could really get up to if God removed His restraining grace from you for just an hour. I have no doubt every single person I can see with my eyes right now would murder someone within an hour if God were to restrain His grace from your life and mine. But Jesus Christ comes to resolve that problem, to turn murderers into those who love, to turn thieves into those who have something to give to those in need, to turn adulterers into faithful, godly spouses because He died so that we might love. And we love even the world, though they hate. And that is our weapon. The more they hate, the more we love. The more we love, the more we are like Christ. The more we are like Christ, the more we are hated. And the more we are hated, the more we love. Because there is no relationship in this world that does not require you to love. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for the Gospel. For while we were yet enemies of God, Christ died for us. So we pray, O Lord, that we will remember that with our enemies. We will remember that even with our friends. That whether friend or enemy, we must love. But let us learn what true love is. Not the love of the world. Not the love of the devil. Not even the love of 
those who strip away all of its parts, but a true love that demands everything of us, even laying down our life for one another. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.